As I mentioned, we'll be doing, I'm going to be doing a lot of teaching tonight because, uh, well, this is a lecture series, and I just ask your forgiveness because I'm going to be rather closely tied to my notes more than I'm used to and more than I'm comfortable with. Tonight, I would like to begin with something that we've never done at this church before. I'd like to begin with the Apostles' Creed. Now, trigger warning, okay, because some of you know what's coming. Some of you grew up in a Roman Catholic context, um, and so you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed. Some of you have grown up in a Reformed Presbyterian context, and so you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed. There is a line in the third verse of the Apostles' Creed that says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Now, if you don't know, and I think most of you know, Catholic doesn't mean Roman Catholic. The word Catholic is the Latin word for universal. So in the Apostles' Creed, when we, and we're about to recite it together, when we say in unison, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, we're declaring our belief in the universal church of God at all times, in all places, throughout all of the generations, of which we are a part. And so in a very real sense, we are the true universal church. We are the Catholic Church. Mind you, we're not Roman Catholic, but we are the Church of the Living God, the Church of Christ, universal in every time, place, and throughout the generations. So, with that, and for the sake of reading, would you stand with me so that we could recite this creed together? And I taught this creed to my daughter, and we used to pray this creed at night and before bedtime. Um, and so it's something that I'm very familiar with, and I hope it's something that you all familiarize yourself. You'll understand why we're doing this as I get into Irenaeus and we begin to talk about Irenaeus, the church father. So let's do this together. I'll try to do it in a way where we can all follow along and read rather slowly. Ready? I believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Oh, i got to hit the next slide. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Remain standing for the reading of Scripture and take your Bibles with me and open to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, after which I will pray. What we recited just now is the oldest creed, the oldest confession of the church, written perhaps sometime in the second century. But we turn our attention now to the living Word of God. Just one verse tonight. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 9, God's word reads, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Amen. Let's come to God in prayer. Good and gracious God, as we continue to study our family history, those who have gone before us, brothers and sisters, our forefathers in the faith, encourage us and build us up in our most holy faith. Help us and fill us with your Holy Spirit, even as you did them. Enable us to discern the times and to know how to walk faithfully in a crooked and perverse generation. Use the life and ministry of Irenaeus 
to bless and encourage us as we seek to walk by faith for your honor and glory. This we pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus' great sermon on the mount begins with beatitudes, the blessedness of kingdom citizens, those who have trusted not in themselves, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ. These, beloved, are the blessed. Blessed are, they begin, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, and it goes on. Blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The Greek word for peace is erene. Erene. And so his name, Irenaeus, means peace. Peacemaker. The shalom, if you will, of God. And Irenaeus lived up to his namesake. Now, he first appears on the theological scene in Rome. And he is an apprentice. He is a disciple of another man whose name is Polycarp. We learned about Polycarp last week. Now, Polycarp was sent to Rome from Smyrna. Remember, Polycarp was the bishop. He was the bishop of Smyrna. And mind you, we're not used to that language. We're not used to hearing the word bishop. And rightly so. The word bishop is a translation of the Greek word episkopos. This is where we get the term episcopal from. Uh, But this word bishop or episkopos is used interchangeably in the Greek New Testament with words like presbyteros or presbyterian or presbyter, what we translate as elder. And it is also used interchangeably, this word episkopos or bishop, it is also used interchangeably with the Greek word poimen, which is the word for shepherd or pastor. So we might more accurately say that Polycarp was the pastor or chief elder in the city of Smyrna, which, as you remember, was one of the seven churches in Asia Minor to whom the book of Revelation was written. Now, Smyrna was an important port city. It was in the southwest corner of the Aegean Sea. And Polycarp, the bishop, the pastor of Smyrna, he was sent from Smyrna on assignment to Rome. Now, Polycarp at this point was an old man. And so he traveled with his disciple, with two of his disciples actually, with a man named Irenaeus and his best friend, another man named Florinus. Now, Polycarp was an old man, 84. He was just two years away from martyrdom. Well, as I mentioned, he was on assignment in Rome, 154 AD, and he was there to meet with another pastor, a man named Anicetus. He was one of the leading pastors in Rome, this Anicetus. And and Rome, as you well know, was a big city with various churches, and in fact, multiple pastors. But Anicetus was apparently one of the lead pastors in Rome. And Polycarp, listen, Polycarp was not small beans. He was well known in the Christian world. And he was known as one of the apostles, or rather disciples, of the Apostle John. And so it was no small thing to host Polycarp, this well-known pastor. 
And while Polycarp was in Rome, he was no doubt preaching and teaching. But he was there primarily, he was called to Rome primarily to settle a dispute. Now, most of you know that there's a church in the east and a church in the west. If you were to look at a map of the Mediterranean, as you see there, the western church, and you hear this often as you study history, the western church refers to Rome and everything to the west of Rome, or in other words, uh, everywhere where Rome had an influence. This is a reference to the Western church, generally speaking, the territories to the west of that great city. We are part of that Western Christian tradition. While the church in the east refers to Asia Minor, it it refers to Constantinople and everything to the east of Constantinople. Well, the tradition in the practice of the church in the west very early on, began to pull apart from the tradition and practice of the church in the East. And so attempts were made throughout history to maintain unity between the West and the East. And one of the hot-button topics in the days of Polycarp and Irenaeus, one of the hot-button topics was when should Easter be celebrated? When should we celebrate Easter? On what day? And according to which calendar? Well, Polycarp was in the East. He was a bishop and a pastor in the East, the Eastern Church. And they celebrated in the East, according to the Jewish calendar, on the 14th of the month of Nisan. Again, according to the Jewish Passover. And they celebrated on whatever day Easter fell. So if Easter fell that year on a Monday, they did... They did resurrection on Monday. Or if it was on a Thursday, then they celebrated on Thursday. It was unpredictable. While the church in the West, Rome in other words, they celebrated on Sunday every year because Jesus rose on Sunday morning and they followed a different calendar. A question, and you can respond. We celebrate, what tradition do we follow? The West. We celebrate resurrection on Sunday. Every year, Easter falls on a Sunday. Well, long story short, the debate is, when do we celebrate Easter? Well, long story short, as the debates raged on, uh, they decided, Polycarp and Anicetus, they decided to, well, they agreed to disagree. They agreed to disagree. So, both practices were upheld in order to maintain unity And to emphasize that our unity as God's church is not necessarily around practice and tradition, but around doctrine and belief. Our unity, friends, is not around practice and tradition, but around doctrine and belief. And so agreeing to disagree, peace was maintained. Peace was maintained so that the early church would unite under the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, as we've been learning from the book of Jude. And not whether, um, not whether a, a pastor should wear a suit on Sunday, or whether you sing hymns or, or contemporary songs, or you have open or closed communion, or because your church does the NASB, oh, we do the ESV, oh, we do the King James, bless your heart. So these things are, are at best secondary, but, but tertiary. And so 
Our unity is around doctrine and belief, not around practice and tradition. And so what Irenaeus witnessed as a young man, what he witnessed no doubt left a lasting impression on him. An example of unity and love. Vehement disagreement without division. Peacemaking. I believe in one holy Catholic church. Well, Polycarp would head back to Smyrna. And he left Irenaeus in Rome. He left him there for further study and to to prepare for the ministry. And sadly, this was the last time that Irenaeus would see his pastor and discipler. Polycarp, as, as you well know, would be martyred two years later in Smyrna. He would be burned at the stake. And if you remember from uh, the lecture last week, the fires wouldn't take him up. And so a soldier came and pierced him through. And so much blood came out of Polycarp that his blood actually extinguished the flames. So let's rewind. Irenaeus was born in the east, in Smyrna, presumably to Christian parents who named him well. He and they, his parents, they sat under the ministry of the man who was discipled by the Apostle John, Polycarp. Irenaeus was was born some 20 to 25 years after John's death. And his parents, Irenaeus' parents may well have known John. And Polycarp, their, their pastor, certainly did, absolutely. As a young boy, Irenaeus listened attentively to his pastor and to his preaching. And, and Polycarp, he was a strict expositor. He was a diligent student of Scripture, a, a theologian, pastor, and preacher in the Johannine apostolic tradition. Johannine is just a reference to the Apostle John. Minjay encouraged us to read his letter to the Philippian church. And if you actually, and it's very short, and you could read it in one sitting, maybe in a matter of five minutes, If you read his epistle to the Philippians, all he does is quote scripture. All he it's you prick him anywhere and he bleeds, as Minjay referred to Bunyan, he bleeds bibbling. And Irenaeus, as a young man learning under his pastor, had a best friend, a boy that he grew up with, a man named Florinus. They were they were like two peas in a pot. They And they would both go on to pursue the ministry. And as they grew in knowledge and faith, and here's where the stories overlap, Polycarp would take both of them to Rome with him. And both Florinus and Irenaeus would witness and learn from the Easter debates between Polycarp and Anicetus. And I mentioned that when Polycarp returned to Smyrna, he left his disciples in Rome. Why? For further study, so that they might further prepare for ministry. And while in Rome, these men were exposed to all kinds of Christian teachers and philosophers. They were exposed to the good and the bad and to the ugly. And Irenaeus himself would sit under another great teacher and expositor, uh, a man named Justin Martyr. He is known in church history as the great Christian orator and philosopher. And Justin was a champion of orthodoxy. And he battled against pagan religion, especially the pagan religion of Rome. 
and orthodoxy. We use a lot of terms. What does orthodoxy mean? Uh, orthos means straight, right? And, and doxa is like glory, or in this situation, it means the, the, straight, uh, the straight praise. And so orthodoxy is a reference to uh, truth and what is established and known uh, to be that straight truth. But it was in Rome that Irenaeus and Florinus were also exposed to all kinds of heresies. Now, that's an important word, heresy. We don't use that word lightly at pillar. In fact, we're very careful with that word. And that word heresy, over the years, has morphed over time and has come to refer now to any belief or belief system that claims to be Christian, but contradicts primary gospel doctrine as taught in the Word of God and affirmed by church history. For example, let me give you some examples of easy heresies to spot. Denying the deity or the humanity of Christ. That is heretical. Believing in multiple gods, lesser deities. That is heresy. Denying the word of God or rejecting the scriptures while claiming to be Christian, that is heresy. Or, or teaching that salvation is by works. Now, now these are some obvious heresies. Paul uses this expression, a racist or heresy in the New Testament, to refer to divisive people, to those who choose against orthodoxy. Heresy is a choice, choosing that which contradicts primary gospel doctrine. Well, in Rome, as you might imagine, Irenaeus and, and Florinus were, they were exposed to all kinds of teachings. Specifically, they were specifically exposed to a group who claimed that they had secret knowledge, that they had higher learning. And because of their connection to the spiritual uh, higher knowledge, to this spiritual world and to this higher knowledge, they thus had the true meaning of Scripture. They had true knowledge of the Scriptures. And, and these sects and, and heretics would later be known as the Gnostics. The Gnostics and Gnosticism, which comes from the Greek word gnosis, which is just to know, knowledge. Gnosticism was a deadly cocktail mixture of Greek philosophy, Platonic thought, Eastern pagan religion, and of course, Christianity. Now, the Gnostics believed and taught that all physical matter was fundamentally evil. All physical matter, all of the creation is fundamentally evil. And it was and is the spirit and the spiritual that is fundamentally good. And so the whole world, uh, the whole world is corrupt. And the goal of Gnosticism now was to free oneself from material existence, from the body and from the flesh. If you know anything about Eastern religions, this sounds like Buddhism. It sounds like Buddhism. My mom raised me as a nominal Buddhist. This sounds very much like Buddhism. In fact, some have even argued that Buddhism has its source in proto-Gnosticism. Beloved, Gnosticism is alive and well today. Perhaps not under the same name, but in thought. 
In thought, it is alive and well. We might argue, and it might be argued, that our whole identity crisis culture, this gender identity and sexual identity, our identities are trapped within our bodies. (laughs) What's your spirit animal, right? My gender is, and this is how they speak, these neo-Gnostics, is who my soul is, not what my biology tells me. This whole quest to discover the real self, the true you, is nothing but Gnostic gibberish. What's more, the Gnostics believed, they believed in a pantheon of gods. This is where the Greek philosophy and Greek religion gets mixed in. And they referred to this pantheon of gods as aeons or eons, lesser gods that came, lesser gods that all came from one supreme god, like Zeus and the rest of the gang. There was one supreme aeon, one supreme god. And and this supreme god, this supreme aeon, he generated... And then he emanated a host of lesser gods. And he did this with his female counterpart. And you can see the supreme god in the Gnostic understanding of the celestial world right on top of this hierarchy. So this supreme god, who was known in the Gnostic understanding as Pro-Arche, but he had another name. His name was Propator. Oh, but he had another name. His other name was Bythus, and he had a female counterpart. And so they generated, they procreated as it were, he with his female counterpart, and her name was Ania, but she had another name. Her name was Charis. And then she had another name. Her name was Sige. Now, you're thinking, why do they have so many names? Why so many names for the same quote-unquote God? Well, because the Gnostics, they all taught different things. They all taught different things about all of these aeons. And they all had different origin stories, and they all had different names. And they all taught different things about each one of these aeons. In Rome, there were all kinds of Gnostic sects popping up everywhere, each with their own personalized version of this madness. Now, the lesser aeons, uh, the lesser aeons that were emanated from the original aeon, they were ignorant of their supreme aeon. They had no idea. And so they too, and you could see, they matched up, and they also began to procreate or emanate another generation of aeons altogether. Now, Gnosticism generally taught that these lesser aeons, which came from the first aeon, they brought forth another generation and another generation after them. And it was through this procreation that the material world and also the spiritual world was created. And you're thinking, my goodness, this is getting crazy. Well, here we go. There was one particular aeon and her name was Sophia. And she broke with the pattern of 
ignorance among the aeons. And she desired to go back to and find knowledge of the original aeon. And Sophia then, in her quest, she slipped up and she emanated another being named and called the Demiurge. Yes, I can't believe I'm saying this at church. But Sophia then emanated another generation and specifically this aeon known as the Demiurge. And the Gnostics identified this Demiurge as the God of the Old Testament. Here he is on a coffee mug. The Demiurge, and I did that just so that you would laugh, but it's a tough crowd tonight. (laughs) There we go. Pity laughs is what that is. This Demiurge was the creator God of the Old Testament who made the physical world that we live in. This evil Demiurge is himself ignorant, and in his ignorance, he has convinced himself that he is the supreme God, that he is the first aeon and the supreme aeon. And while fleshly, the world of the flesh and the material world is evil, the Gnostics taught this, that deep in the hearts of men and women, there is a divine spark. And if this divine spark is activated by their secret knowledge, when one possesses this knowledge, this gnosis, which is able to save us from our flesh, that enlightenment which they offer would then enable people to escape the Demiurge's evil material world and join the spiritual world of good in which is true knowledge of the original aeon. This is what they taught. This is their version of salvation. And so in their made-up religion, the Demiurge and his created world are evil. But what about Jesus? But Jesus and his father, they are good. And Jesus to the Gnostics, some Gnostics argued that he was sent from the original Aeon. While others argued that he was the, in fact, the incarnation of the original Aeon. And he was here to enlighten men who would, he would then lead the way back to a higher spiritual knowledge. And yet others still argued that Jesus was a pure spirit. That, that because all material is evil, so he couldn't have incarnated and therefore Jesus was a pure spirit. He, he only appeared as a man to the undiscerning, but he was really a ghost. Okay, This is the Jesus of Gnosticism. Now, Some of you are like, what in the world? What the what? Who who would believe any of this stuff? And listen, this, this might sound crazy and just downright ludicrous. But sinful man, sinful man isn't and always has been attracted by higher learning. Secret knowledge. This this is prevalent today. Listen, friends, today in our world, it takes some of the smartest people in the world to convince us of the most insane ideas. And, and, And then we're wowed by their degrees, by the schools they went to, or the books they have written, and they're given the title expert. So so even though their ideas defy common sense, people eat it up and they believe it. They trust in the quote-unquote experts. Today, 
Today, the expert class tells us that a man can be a woman and vice versa. And they make all kinds of distinctions between biological sex and gender. And they create stories and an entire system of terms and terminology to talk about and understand their own madness. But when you ask a two-year-old, can you tell between a man? Of course a two-year-old knows the difference between a man and a woman. A Supreme Court justice was asked, what is a woman? A Supreme Court justice in the United States of America would ask, what is a woman? And she punted. She says, well, I can't answer that question because I'm not an expert. I'm not a biologist. We need experts to answer that now. Gnosticism, friends, is alive and well. And the enticement of secret knowledge, of higher learning, of sophistication, it's all there. We think of the creation and the complexity of the human cell, irreducibly complex and self-replicating. We think of the vastness of the universe, quantum physics, and general relativity. How about the discovery of, of DNA, which holds more information than a high-powered server, and I would say an entire room of high-powered servers. And all of this order and all of this intricacy, microscopic precision on the one hand, and galactic enormity on the other hand. All of it, all of it, all of it comes, where does it come from? <laughs> this is their explanation. Big Bang. What? That's madness. All of this precision and beauty and grandeur comes from a, you couldn't think of anything but big bang? Chaos and chance produced all of the intricacy and order? Or better yet, you ask, well, what was before the big bang? And some atheist physicists will say, well, nothing. Nothing was before the Big Bang. And so you ask, oh, so nothing produced something? How did something come to be if it was nothing before? Oh, they say, well, it takes a really long time for nothing to make. Something. Four billion years. Six billion years. Fifteen billion years. And then nothing can perhaps make something. But let me tell you, friends, nothing produces nothing. And so it's just absolutely ridiculous. And it takes PhDs of the highest caliber to convince the world of what is downright foolish. And this was and is Gnosticism. Sinful man, the fallen nature is tempted and enticed by secret knowledge. Friends, you remember what happened to Eve in the garden, right? Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Genesis 3, 6 tells us that she saw the tree, that it was good for food, that it was pleasing to the eye. And here it is, a tree desirable to make one wise. She wanted to be as wise as God and wiser yet still. This was and is the allure of Gnosticism, to know what others don't know. It is and was a cult of pride, to know the secret story behind the story, 
to know the story that explains the story. Oh, how we love backstories, do we not? We love and, and we can't wait for the prequel to come out, right? Uh, we love to know the story behind the story. We're not satisfied with the plain and simple text of Scripture, with the simple, straightforward gospel of God's salvation. Instead, instead the Gnostics go deeper. The Gnostics have true knowledge. They understand, and their understanding is an expert understanding. And so we've got to go back to our story here. Florinus, Irenaeus' great and best friend, was taken up with the Gnostics. He was intrigued by their explanations. He was enticed by their ideas and this deeper knowledge, this secret knowledge, knowledge that others didn't have. And he got sucked into the Gnostic cult. Listen to Paul. I was with a brother and we were talking about this verse this week. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 11, says this. He feared for the Corinthians. And he wrote to the Corinthians and he said that he was afraid that they would be deceived. Just as the serpent deceived Eve. And this is what he said in verse 3, 2 Corinthians eleven three. 3. He said that he feared, he feared that their minds would be corrupted just as the serpent deceived Eve from the simplicity that is in Christ. That is an important phrase. Paul was afraid that we would be and the Corinthians would be deceived from the simplicity that we have in Jesus Christ. Beloved, that is a, it's an important phrase and it's a critical warning. And, and it's important for us, and perhaps more, more so for us at a church that, that is, I would argue, pretty cerebral, very theologically precise, and doctrinally oriented. That's, and this is precisely why the, the gospel, the simple plain, unadorned gospel is preached week in and week out at Pillar. We never get beyond the gospel. The message of salvation in Jesus Christ, His person and work. We make it our aim, as Paul said, to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Paul says he didn't come with excellence of speech or with wisdom or eloquence. I determined to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. That was Polycarp. He was a simple man. And, and that is what he passed on to his disciples, to Irenaeus and Florinus. But this simplicity, it was not enough for Florinus. He failed to treasure the simplicity that we have in Christ. He wanted more. The gospel was not enough. And so he was deceived. If you read the book of Revelation, the first church is the church in Ephesus. And Christ commends them for their ability to discern between right and wrong and their good deeds. But he says, I have one thing against you. You've forsaken your first love. And then he says, go back to what you did at first. Repent. Well, the gospel was not enough for Florinus, and he was deceived. And Florinus was particularly deceived by a certain brand of Gnosticism. I mentioned to you that Gnosticism was not uniform. It, it, was, it was like a, a multi-headed hydra. 
and each head in the Gnostic religion was doing its own thing, but it was all attached to a body. Each head growing out of a similar foundation. And here's Valentinus and um, the type of Gnosticism that Florinus was sucked into was Valentinian Gnosticism. And, and there were other brands. In fact, Irenaeus in this book, Against Heresies, he mentions 15 types of Gnosticism. In his life and work, Irenaeus dismantled 15 different types of Gnosticism. Again, all, uh, all attached to the same body, but teaching and declaring different heresies. Well, Florinus fell headlong, and it broke his friend's heart. Irenaeus would spend the rest of his life reading and studying Gnosticism in order to refute its error and expose its falsehood. Why? Why? To win back his friend. To win him back to Christ. You know, I, I've had the opportunity to read this volume uh, over the last month. And uh, the first two books in this five-volume compendium are all about the 15 versions of Gnosticism. And listen, I was tired after 15 pages. Um, and uh, I slogged through the whole thing. And let me tell you, I, ha I, was, I, was, I wanted to throw this book against the wall because I was so tired of Gnosticism. Irenaeus spent his entire life studying and reading the Gnostics. Why? To minister to his friend. His life work is now compiled in this little volume here, and it's called Against Heresies. And we'll get back to this work in just a second. Let me take us back to this story. Because Irenaeus was still a young man. But after his stint in Rome, his master and teacher Polycarp is martyred back home in Smyrna. And after his martyrdom, Irenaeus is dispatched as a missionary and as a church planter to the city of Lugdunum. And, and I love studying church history just because I get to uh, say city names and mispronounce things and learn about people's, well, all these cool names. Well, Lugdunum was in the, was in the region of Gaul. And that city is now referred to as Lyon. And uh, my wife said, you better not say it wrong. It's not pronounced lions. It's, uh, it's Lyon. So I will say it with that kind of pep as we move through uh, what's left here. Irenaeus was sent to the city of Lyon in the second century. And it was a growing city. It was along a major trade route. And today it's the third largest city in France. Irenaeus was assigned to Lyon because of the small but quickly growing presence of Christians in the city. And these Christians, they needed, they needed a minister and they needed pastors. And I say pastors because he would be an associate pastor. He would be under a much older man named Pothinus, a man who was 80 years old and was Polycarp's contemporary. Now, Pothinus was also from Smyrna. And, and he was, again, one of Polycarp's contemporaries. And so they made an excellent team, Pothinus and Irenaeus. In fact, Pothinus had been there for years, and Pothinus was the first missionary sent to Lyon in the second century. And it was an unreached part of France, then Gaul, and he was sent by Polycarp himself. 
Now, Lyon in the second century was not some kind of vacation destination like you see here and like we enjoy. There were barbarian invasions. There was hostility against Christians, Roman persecution of the church. Irenaeus was not sent to a Christianized mission field. In fact, some of the most gut-wrenching martyr stories from the ancient church come from Lyon. Now, Pothinus and Irenaeus shared a pulpit, kind of like we share the pulpit here. They, they, they preached uh, in Lyon, and Irenaeus uh, was the obvious heir apparent, the younger man. And it was Irenaeus who distinguished himself on the pulpit among the Christians in Lyon, uh, in Lyon as an exemplary teacher and theologian and pastor. And he was a simple man, um, a man of the Bible, a, a man of the book, a man who preached Christ and him crucified. Well, in the course of time, Pothinus, the senior pastor, and the church in Lyon sent Irenaeus to a church conference. And he was sent to a church conference in Rome. And he was to represent for the church in Lyon to settle a dispute, another dispute, a debate that required a pastor and a theological touch, a touch that Irenaeus excelled in. As you know, he was a peacemaker. And so they sent Irenaeus the peacemaker. And the church in Rome called Irenaeus to help them deal with another group called the Montanists. Now, I'm not going to get into Montanism and Montanus and his teachings, but essentially they were a charismatic group in the second century. And so Irenaeus is sent back to Rome, and they're wondering, what do we do with the Montanists? And he was there to make peace. But when the church in Rome sent Irenaeus back, while Irenaeus was gone, he discovered that the senior pastor was martyred, and 48 other church members. And so Irenaeus returns to Lyon after persecution broke out under the emperor Marcus Aurelius. And his friend Pothinus was imprisoned and ultimately killed. And he returns now to this devastated church. Can you imagine counseling? And maybe you can't, but maybe you can. Can you imagine returning to pastor a church that just lost 49 of its members, family members, fathers, mothers, siblings, a pastor. Well, Irenaeus was called to this ministry, comforting those who had lost loved ones, caring for children who lost their parents and siblings. And he would live out the rest of his life ministering in Lyon, preaching the gospel, ministering to the saints and building God's church. And grow it absolutely did. At the height of his ministry, it was said that the whole city had become Christian. And that through the consistent and simple and powerful preaching of the gospel. It wasn't smooth sailing for the church. It wasn't smooth sailing for Irenaeus. He had persecution on the one hand, and on the other hand, the Gnostics and the Gnosticism was moving into the city. It was moving into Lyon and the particular brand that had taken his friend Florinus. And it was Irenaeus who single-handedly began to study and read up on what these heretic 
Gnostics taught. And as I mentioned, in his work against heresies, he dismantled 15 different types of Gnosticism. And he wrote five volumes against the Gnostics, five books to defend the church and dismantle the heretics. And that to win back his friend, to call him back to his first love, and to call him back to the simplicity that we have in Christ. And so Irenaeus leaves us a legacy. His work against Gnosticism became the benchmark and has been the standard for orthodoxy. And, and much of what he wrote out and expounded about uh, God the Father and God the Son and God's church, much of which he wrote out in this work against the Gnostics, found its way into the first creed of the church, into the Apostles' Creed. And so he leaves us a legacy. In fact, so critical was Irenaeus' ministry that he has been referred to in church history as the founder of Christian theology. Now, friends, that's quite a title. The founder of Christian theology. He was in a very real sense the first to systematize biblical doctrine, to systematize orthodoxy. And to this day, his work against Gnostics is still the primary source used by secular and Christian historians to understand what Gnosticism was and what it taught. And perhaps the most important, as we consider Irenaeus' legacy, that he leaves us, the most important is his simple and consistent preaching of Christ. Christ and Him crucified. The unifying theme of his preaching was the headship of Adam and the headship of Jesus Christ. What Paul taught in Romans chapter 5, that in Adam we die, but in Christ, in the second Adam, under the headship of Christ, we are made alive. We live because he lives. And so Irenaeus' understanding of the whole redemptive story, in, while he was teaching in simplicity, he used the idea that Paul teaches us from Adam to Christ. The whole redemptive story. Death came through a tree in the garden, but life would come through death on another tree. What Adam failed to do, Christ accomplished for all who would trust in his person and work. In and by Adam's disobedience, sin separated us from God. But Jesus, through his obedience, he has reconciled us to God. And it is that simple message of salvation that the church is united under as one holy Catholic church. Again, the central unifying theme of his preaching and ministry, the central unifying theme of God's church is the right preaching of God's word. No secret knowledge, no Gnostic explanations that deviate from the plain apostolic preaching of the simple gospel while simple friends we must not take these things for granted more recently the church was swept up in what is known as blm and in this movement we were made to think that the original sin was the sin of racism redefining anthropology 
redefining. And this movement brought with it all kinds of ideologies that came in under the rug. Secret knowledge and understanding of structures and, and structural racism and how it affects uh, specific branches of government and society and the way we think. It's to the point where it was a multi-headed hydra that if you cut one head off and solve a problem, the other one grows up to attack you. Friends, we need that simple, plain preaching of the gospel now more than ever for the sake of the unity of the church. And it was from this point on that God's church began to write out creeds and confessions. And as I mentioned, and we began with the Apostles' Creed tonight, it was a man like Irenaeus and men like Irenaeus that were the catalyst for the Apostles' Creed. And whoever wrote out the creed read Irenaeus. And I don't think it was Irenaeus himself, but they certainly were reading him. They read his work and they literally lifted sentences and phrases and, and they borrowed sentences and expressions from his work against heresies. At the end of his life as an old man, Irenaeus was called back to Rome for one more church conference. He was called back for the Easter controversy. When should we celebrate the resurrection? When should we celebrate Easter? Eusebius, the historian, recounts that Irenaeus, in his old age, while this controversy threatened to divide the church, East and West, it was Irenaeus who once again came to make peace and preserve the unity of the church, just as his disciple Polycarp, his discipler Polycarp, once did. One holy Catholic church, united not by tradition or by church practices, but united under the preaching of the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is Irenaeus's great legacy a legacy that unites Christians all over the world today, throughout time and in every place. And thus, unity would not be threatened in the church for another 150 years at the Council of Nicaea. But Pastor Danny will come next week and teach us about another man who stood on the shoulders of Irenaeus, a man named Athanasius. Athanasius. The immortal. This is his name. Well, we close our time in prayer. Let's pray together. Our good God and Heavenly Father, as we consider the saints of old who have gone before us, men and women of whom the world is not worthy, we stand among a great cloud of witnesses. Those who, like us, and we like them, preach Christ and Him crucified to a dying world. Oh God, I pray that You would guard our hearts and protect us. That we would cherish the simplicity that we have in Jesus. Lest we be deceived. Lest we be deceived by the deceiver and the deceptive world. Remind us and bring us back to that simple gospel lest we get ahead of ourselves. Oh, Lord God, I pray that you'd make us faithful as we return to uh, homes and to family and to workplaces and to wherever you would take us. 
that we would have the name of Jesus on our lips and certainly on our hearts. Oh God, use us for the sake of eternal souls that are yet to inherit their salvation. Oh Lord, be honored and glorified as we seek to honor you and to preach Christ. This we pray in your holy and precious name. Amen.